today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking at more difficult topics, more controversies that have surrounded the Catholic Church. Today, we'll look at some of the worst instances of human corruption the Church has ever had, from illegitimate indulgences to clerics throughout history helping their family members instead of helping the Church, and all sorts of other bad actors. We'll try to understand how to balance the divine nature of the Church with her very human members. You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Dr. John Rao for episode number 25 of the Apologetic series here on the SSPX podcast. Dr. Rao, thanks for joining us again on our, uh, what is this, our fifth time meeting about about some issues in the Catholic Church that always come up when we are talking apologetically. Uh, today, we're talking about corruption in the church. Now, last episode, we talked about bad popes. Um, today's topic is about corruption. We're going to get into indulgences. That's kind of an obvious one. Um, but why did you want to do a, a specific separate one about corruption when we've already talked about bad popes. It sort of seems like the same thing, or are they well, related? Or uh, Yes, they are related, um, and I wanted to take a little heat off of the clergy as well uh, in discussing this thing, although, again, they deserve a good deal of, of, of criticism for corruption in the church. But I wrote an article some time ago for the Angelus about corruption in the church, and it was entitled, It, T- it Takes a Christendom. And what I meant to say with this article was that it takes an entire Christian culture to be able to support all of the different elements that are part of it in order uh, to jointly, um, harmoniously raise themselves up to God. And it also takes the help um, of a Christendom to prevent corruption. And if what you've got is an entire society steeped in corruption, uh, it's not going to be the case that it's going to be particularly easy for the clerical hierarchy from the papacy on down to be able to fight it because everything that is powerful around you uh, in secular society, which uh, generally speaking is much more powerful than the spiritual elements in that society, Uh, Everything around you is going to drag you down and make the efforts of the best possible people within uh, the actual authoritative structure of the church. Uh, It's going to make all their best best efforts rather uh, rather difficult to come to fruition. And the problem that you have periodically, and again, you have it right now, that that problem, um, in an extremely intense way, uh, some of the viewers might remember that uh, in the past couple of lectures, I noted I was preparing uh, the last lectures of my series on church history dealing with uh, the end of the reign of Pope Benedict XVI. And Benedict, um, in uh, his last talks, uh, describes the fact that you've got an entire secular society around you which is committed to destroying uh, Christianity. And as a result of that, the efforts of the people trying to fight for it are, are harder than ever. And the latter period of the Middle Ages is uh, a time in many respects like that, 
where what you've got is a kind of burial in a very secularly focused rut, um, something which really uh, disturbs all of the reformers of the time, and especially disturbs them because of the fact that there is this way in which everybody in the society around you, among all, all of the laity, uh, as, as well as then the, uh, the, the, the clergy, which comes out of the laity, uh, everything is just thinking about uh, every specific matter in relation to its, its, secular, its secular characteristics. And just a, a couple of points in this regard that I think need to be emphasized before we would move on to something like indulgences. Uh, one, uh, I think I briefly mentioned once before that when people in, think about a vocation uh, in the 1300s, 1400s, early 1500s, they don't think about a vocation the way we think about a vocation, or at least the Reformed Tridentine Church thought about a vocation as something which is a calling from God that involves uh, spiritual commitment and um, sacrifices in that respect. When they talked about vocation, they talked about it in conjunction with how many livings were available, how many, um, how many uh, possibilities of gaining property or what comes from property to support someone were available. And the greatest effort that was made on the part of the reformers who then went out at Trent was to switch this kind of mentality. Similarly, it is definitely the case that the Roman Curia, which especially after the end of the Great Western Schism and all of the problems that were connected with that uh, in uh, 14, 14, 15, 16, 17, when it came to an end, the Roman Curia and the Roman papacy is in very, very um, uh, difficult straits financially. And the main focus to a large degree, there are exceptions, both in terms of pontiffs or, or, or sometimes the actions of pontiffs who are basically uh, secularly focused. But generally speaking, it's, it's with this idea of finding ways to pay for everything um, on a secure basis, which means that you're really in, in a kind of rut. And just one other follow-up matter in this respect, which is important to the whole indulgences story, is that there are and there have been, um, with ever-increasing numbers since the 1200s, these, these various curial officials uh, who are supported in Rome by money that comes from, from dioceses uh, that they may have the title to as ordinaries, but who, have, uh, who, who, who never see those dioceses. Um, and in fact, will send in effect hirelings to go out in order to take care of them. And parallel to this, uh, there are all sorts of people, chiefly from, chiefly from um, important uh, noble families, but also from important uh, uh, city councils and city governments and the like. Uh, there are important forces elsewhere in Europe that need money or are on the hunt for money. And as a consequence, what they'll do uh, is they'll find a way to get a diocese under their control uh, and take the monies that come from that diocese uh, and then just simply appoint hirelings to run it. So this is why you have um, a, a good number of cases 
where you don't have just, uh, let's say, someone who is looking for money who might come from a noble family and have secular family concerns to take care of, who uh, in the hunt for money gets many dioceses under his control, a number of dioceses under his control. But you often find people who are named as the bishop of a given diocese who are not even ordained. They're not even ordained, much less consecrated as bishops. So they've got the title of bishop. They get the money that comes from the diocese, but they can't function as a bishop because they're not even a priest. And therefore, the hirelings that they send in there are sort of uh, twice removed from anything spiritual because the leadership is not even focused on it. So it's no wonder uh, that what happens is that you you have a, a lack of control over what it is that's spiritually going on all over Europe. And then with a, a kind of lack of interest in correcting things on the part of the Roman Curia, if uh, you can make money off of, let's say, maintaining a lot of what are really abusive situations. Somebody might pay the Roman Curia in order to get a number of dioceses under his control, even though with already existing canonical legislation, you're not supposed to do that. Or you can pay for an exemption to um, to uh, really not fulfill your responsibilities in other regards, uh, simply because the Roman Curia needs the money and is willing to, to go along with it. So it's a, a real recipe for endless difficulties. And then the, if you have a hireling come in, to watch over a diocese or a parish or whatever, the hireling is, is, is going to be paid insufficiently as well so that he doesn't have the money at his disposal to be able to take care of other administrative activities in the, uh, in the diocese. That's the story. And you've got people who are so indifferent to their responsibilities. Um, I don't have the, the, the information at my fingertips exactly, but I do know for example, there are major dioceses in places, especially like uh, the German-speaking lands of the Holy Roman Empire, where you've got um, you've got uh, uh, a, uh, a territory where no one administers confirmation for uh, close to three quarters of a century. Uh, just not done. Just not done. <laughs> so, so okay. it's a mess. It's a real mess. I mean, I, despite everything, all the, despite all the horrible abuses that exist today, which in many respects morally are, are, are worse, um, yeah. at least people expect that the person who is the the Archbishop of New York is going to be a consecrated bishop uh, right. and, and generally live there. Um, that was that was going to be my next question. You know, we've been hearing about this Vatican Bank scandal and there's a trial going on and all that kind of stuff. There's financial corruption that exists today in the church. But even though the church is going through a crisis, we can say with some uh, optimism that the Vatican at least is taking this seriously, or at least it seems to be taking this seriously, depending on, you know, what what side of the story you, you look at. But at least the guys who are involved in this, you know, London finance deal, and we're, we're not going to get into all that, but at least there's a trial. At least they're going to be held accountable, we hope. It seems like back then there was there was no even oversight. <clears throat> Excuse me. Did the Pope care? Did the Roman Curia care? I mean, it seems to me that you've said 
the curia was involved in this sort of stuff. But for this period of what few hundred years, this corruption was just happening and no one seemed to care. Uh, well, I mean, there are people who care, um, and even popes at time who care, but who are just overwhelmed by the difficulties of the of the whole the whole situation. But generally speaking, um, it's the case that those who are operating in the Roman Curia don't really care. They have their standard operating procedures. Many of them um, who work there are are really in um, irregular situations. I mean, in terms of not getting ordained, or if they get ordained, ne never saying a mass um, uh, because of the fact that uh, nothing is really demanded of them. So it's um, it's a very very uh, um, painful situation to say the least. So much so that, I mean, let's say, for example, at the time of the real serious efforts to begin to try to work against this underneath Paul III, uh, you, have, you have some of the people who are very instrumental in building the reform and then working at the Council of Trent, who get these responses from curial officials that say, if what we do is we act morally, it will be the destruction of the Roman pontiffs. And then the response to this is, how can it be that the, uh, the, 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 the vicar of Christ uh, will be destroyed by doing what's morally just and avoiding what's moral. And under those circumstances, when you get uh, ferociously reforming popes that come onto the scene, people like Paul IV, whom I've mentioned before, they just simply announce that uh, from morning till night, all of these practices are going to stop. Whatever the, conf whatever the consequences might be, um, uh, uh, financially for the church, and you just have to toss caution to the winds. By the way, not to throw too much uh, cold water on your hopes. <laughs> um, I mean, the problem with the uh, dealing with the, the Vatican Bank or the IOR, as it's officially referred to, that especially uh, that started to come up really seriously under Paul VI, but, but more under John Paul II. Um, the problems in dealing with that uh, reflect. I think nowadays, uh, a lot of the difficulties I just mentioned about the secular domination uh, allowing for continuity of the rut, because the oversight to a large degree, degree is, is coming from precisely this whole global financial structure, which is tied into the whole effort to build up a new world order, which is totally anti-Christian. Uh, anti um, and in this respect, too, I mean, we've got we've got this situation where uh, Pope Francis had that that whole crew um, of of uh, I forget what they call themselves specifically uh, defenders of responsible capitalism or something. And he named them the guardians, the guardians. And if those people are the guardians, well, you know, you've got Plato's the question of the critique of Plato, who guards the guardians? Right. <laughs> so, right. No, I mean, I, I wasn't trying to be. Oh know, no, no, I know. I know. glasses, but <laughs> oh goodness. Um, all right, so I guess to kind of take a step back, and we will get into indulgences, but this this seems to be the the indulgence thing, the indulgence topic seems to be a symptom of this overall broader uh, right. kind of era of corruption within the church. Is that a fair assessment? That that's it. That's it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a you know an important footnote to the whole thing. But okay. I mean, 
the the uh, it's it's really ultimately again a fulfillment of all of the the worst um, uh, fears of two figures I mentioned earlier, Saint Bernard uh, of Clairvaux, and then John of Salisbury, because uh, Saint Bernard said that uh, it's 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 uh, it's not an it it it's one thing having these administrators and lawyers uh, that have to play a role. It's another thing if the entire hierarchy of values is centered around what they consider to be necessary uh, for keeping the machine going, because then you've got um, everything flipped on its head. And he said, it's not, it's not the spirit of Christ. It's the spirit of, um, it's the spirit of the entire you know, Roman legal administrative machine or whatever else might run things. And then John of Salisbury is, is really important because he saw um, something which I think has been standard for the whole development of modernity already, that what was growing up, what was growing up um, in terms of what could be a problem for the church and Christian civilization was the ever-increasing power of, of finance. Um, and of money, of money men. Uh, uh, one book that I uh, also, this is like a, a recurring theme with me that I may have mentioned before, but this one very, very uh, important book for my own development, a set of books, five volumes of uh, a book called The Birth of the Lay Spirit in the, um, in the late Middle Ages. And the author basically uh, uh, underlines the fact that what you've got that overturns Christendom is the appearance of heretical ideas heretical ideas that are that, that, that are there on the scene um, that then play a role with um, the development of um, the um, administrative uh, apparatus of the church, which is necessary for an institution of flesh and blood, but once again, only within the proper hierarchy of values. And then the need uh, for everybody who is either defending something or promoting something to have to find finances for it, and for the money men to try to manipulate everything for their own purposes. Um, and, um, and, and, and so uh, with the, uh, the ever finer development of the, um, of the administrative machinery of the church, which ironically reaches its peak um, with the administration in Avignon, but before the schism, before the schism, but Avignon before the schism in the 1300s down to 1378, the administrative machinery is just so incredibly perfected that it's really ready to run on its own steam. Um, and in effect, if it wants to reinterpret uh, the entire Christian vision to just simply feed uh, feed the beast, <laughs> and then you know, and then um, and then and then move on from there. Uh, so you gotta you gotta at some point um, just simply strike at it, and um, and you know, and and just let the, the chips fall where they may, which is what what does to you know not the a hundred percent degree, but to a to a uh, an admirable and um, effectively transforming degree uh, with um, the Catholic Reformation. It seems that. A, a, another big um, pushback against the Catholic Church, and this isn't really what we're addressing here today, but is the idea that the Pope should be the spiritual leader, the Catholic Church should be uh, focused on efforts of spirituality, not temporal power, not 
you know, managing lands, managing money, all that kind of stuff. It seems that the root of all of this corruption that we're talking about today is an inordinate love of riches or power. Um, so, you know, a, a someone would might say, just forget about the riches, forget about the power. Let's take that temptation away and let the Catholic Church just work on spirituality. The Pope shouldn't be a temporal leader of the papal states or the Vatican as a nation. What would you say to combat that argument? Well, I mean, it's just utterly impossible because, you know, again, we're creatures of flesh and blood. And uh, the mystical body is a, a, an institution which has got its fleshly side to it as well. And it's just inevitable that this is going to be a constant struggle um, throughout all of um, throughout all of an individual's existence, and then throughout all of a um, a church's existence, uh, an entire society's existence. There's just no way, just no way around it. Um, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's not the case uh, as um, as Lord Acton says. Well, it is the case that absolute power can corrupt absolutely. Uh, but it is not the case that power uh, tends to corrupt. Power can tend to do anything. It can tend to ennoble and it can tend to corrupt. Human existence can tend to corrupt and it can tend to, in, to, to um, uh, ennoble and, and um, sanctify a human individual. It's just the nature of a constant, a constant struggle. Um, so that if what you tried to do is to say, well, the church can only exist um, as a um, a spiritual institution, um, what you're doing is you're just you're just talking about an institution that have no meaning for creatures of flesh and blood. And what, in fact, that kind of mentality has done, and it's already obvious that it's going to do that sort of thing, is is clearly there in probably the most dangerous book that was written um, in the Middle Ages which is the book which is called The Defender of the Peace by Marsilius of Padua, which was written in the 1340s, because that book is the recipe uh, based upon the, precisely the argument that um, you're, you're, you're uh, giving voice there to in the eyes of critics, um, th that, that it should be a purely spiritual thing. And what it does is it just hands over everything temporal to the defender of the peace, which in his mind was the a Holy Roman Emperor, but which could be any any other uh, uh, political or secular force, because the argument there is that all things spiritual are corrupted by touching things temporal. So it's left completely in uh, the realm of the quintessences, or you know the, the or the ether, or uh, uh, the, the 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 purely non physical realm, and then you just become a slave to the will of whoever it is that claims he's interpreting God. God's desires. It's impossible. It's just, there's no way a father and a mother of a family can decide that they're going to avoid um, corrupting the spiritual power of, 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 um, of, uh, of parents by avoiding any kind of, of temporal activity with their, their family and their children. I mean, you know, and will, will they make mistakes? Yes. Um, Will they make bad mistakes? Will some of them really do horrible things? Well, yeah, I mean, yes, unfortunately, that's the case. Um, but that's that's life in the fallen world. Yeah, there's there are definitely guardrails. There's definitely ways to uh, to help prevent this kind of stuff. But as you're saying, there's no way to 
absolutely separate, well, church and state. There's no way to absolutely separate the spiritual from the temporal because the church has to have resources in order to survive, in order to do the works. Yes. And again, uh, to quote Benedict XVI again, the speech of his in Freiburg in 2011 on the topic, I think it was that, that speech, on the topic, what needs to be changed in the church? And his answer to that was you and me. <laughs> uh-huh. You and me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's get into uh, the main point of, of this episode, which is the selling of indulgences. Um, right. Let me just ask you briefly, one sentence answer, selling of indulgences bad or good? And then we'll get into the history of it. Well, I mean, the Council of Trent in dealing with the whole problem um, uh, prohibited it. Uh, so so it's, and then um, this was then backed up, I think, which Pope Pius, St. Pius V uh, backed this up. So that, that whole question doesn't exist any longer. Or if it does exist, it's because there are people who have created a new abuse in that regard. Sure. Yeah. So before we get into that, the, the, the scandal of the selling of indulgences and the problem right. with it, let's take just a quick side note, if, if we could, or a, a kind of a backstory on indulgences themselves. Right, uh, right. You're not a priest. I'm not a priest. We're not theologians. Um, right. But broadly, it, you know, an indulgence is the church giving a you know, forgiveness of temporal punishment due to sins from its treasury of graces, and that's a good thing. Um, how do we get into money and works and, you know, the temporal side of things? How do those start to get involved with right. the church granting forgiveness of temporal punishment? Um, right. Where does that start? Well, yeah. yeah, let's just go back to the start again. I mean, I don't think anybody has a problem presuming that uh, a, 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 a pious mother um, uh, praying for her child who is a louse, uh, might be able, in, under those circumstances, to have her greater merits um, have an impact on 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 the boy if if he repents. Sir, uh, sure. I mean, everybody I think can understand that. Everybody prays with uh, you know hopes of of that kind of thing. And then we talked about the fact that um, that uh, uh, even though there's 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 instances theologians can point to going you know right through scripture. Um, through the earlier period in church history, uh, it's it's more surrounding the the crusading period that the whole movement with indulgences begin. Uh, but I did want to note that to begin with, it was spoken of with reference to remitting um, the um, temporal punishments imposed by the church canonically. You know, so let's say, for example, if a, a sinner had been um, told that he had to, because this was often the case. That he had to go on a pilgrimage um, uh, in order to uh, to uh, atone for some crime that he had committed against the church canonically. Uh, what they did then was to say, well, if you go to confession and um, are absolved from your sins and say these prayers, we'll consider it to be the time that you would have gone on a pilgrimage. Um, and then, as they developed where they had the response, where they had the uh, the power to do this and the like, they then theologically uh, uh, tapped into, by the 1300s, this whole argument about um, uh, supererogatory merits and the like, the, the treasury of merits, and being able to tap into um, what it is that um, Christ had earned or the saints had earned, which was over and above 
what um, an individual might have at his disposal. And that too, I think, is a, a, a more theologically profound happened to what I just mentioned before. You'd look to the mother and the better merits of the mother for the help of the wayward son. Uh, and that that was discussed in the 1300s by one of the um, Avignon popes, Clement VI. Then um, what ends up happening is that by, by that time, um, you've also had developed, uh, it's before Clement VI and the super in uh, the treasury of merits, you've had developed the idea that it's not just um, uh, temporal punish punishments of the church for um, for canonical uh, issues, but for the actual uh, remissions of sins that are that are committed other ways, um, and uh, that they're not just. Um, indulgences that can be gained for you, but that you can gain them for people in purgatory as well. You can pray for people in purgatory as well. Uh, and, um, and uh, oh, actually, the purgatory, uh, the purgatory application comes with Sixtus IV. That's in the 1400s. Uh, it, really, it really takes until the latter part of the 1400s before you have a pope saying that um, what, what's done here can be done not just for you, but for, for those in purgatory. And by that time, uh, even earlier, I think at the time of the Avignon Popes, the argument is that the granting of these indulgences is uh, in the hands of the Pope. The Pope is the one who has the key to the, the treasury uh, of merits. Uh, and, um, you know, there, there were already questions about this that people were asking um, theologians were asking, but we might as well, you know, push them off to uh, discussing at, at the time of Luther. Now, um, what ends up happening is that, you know, the 1300s is not, are not a happy period of time, and much of the 1400s is not a happy period of time. Uh, it, it gets uh, better for people and, and on, the, on an economic level, even on a, on a, on a, on a, a physical level with regard to diseases when you get into the latter part of the 1400s. But you've got all these troubles with the bubonic plague, with um, war, the Hundred Years' War, with the collapse of authority in Italy and Germany, um, with the Turks invading, with uh, you know all sorts of troubles. And uh, there is a, a gloominess about spirituality uh, and about uh, the, the horror of sudden death uh, and the like that is very much developed by preachers um, in the 13 and 1400s. And what it does is it, it very much increases, we can see this in any number of regards, the population's terror of sudden death without having done enough um, for the remission of sins with spending endless time in purgatory, and as a result of that, the, the, the whole emphasis on gaining indulgences um, in order to be able to deal with, um, with the problems of sudden death. I mean, if the plague comes into town within two weeks, you could have a third of the population gone. Yeah. It, it grows, and you can see that there's a general desire to tap in to uh, these indulgences and get indulgences. And in fact, um, uh, just to leap ahead for a minute to Albert of Brandenburg, who's the one that's at the center uh, as a bishop of the, the whole issue with Luther, he himself said that he had collected 39 million years of uh, temporal 
um, temporal um, uh, remission of, 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 of punishment. And whether he understood what that meant is, is, a, is another question as well, because, you know, it's a difficult concept. Um, it's not really that difficult if you actually approach it, um, you know, uh, but, but people just don't necessarily approach it. Uh, to really grasp what's at, uh, at at hand there, just like it was never that difficult to read um, a missal to learn what the priest was saying in Latin before before the changeover, but right. uh, a lot of people just didn't want to bother to do it. All right, so as they develop all of these um, uh, these ideas and the demand for indulgences uh, grows more and more and more with the fear of sudden death and um, and the preaching about. Uh, the need for doing penance for one's sins to avoid um, uh, dying suddenly. Well, as all of this grows, the the idea of gaining an indulgence by charitable donations um, enters into the picture as well. Um, charitable donations as being a means of gaining God's favor, and. Uh, even though uh, the granting of indulgences was theoretically, canonically, more and more placed in the hands of the Pope, that didn't stop people on local levels from trying to uh, tap into it if it was financially uh, effective uh, for, let's say, well, to take just one clear example, in southern France, a lot of parishes in southern France by the time you get into the 1300s and 1400s, have a kind of a, um, I think in some places a little pool like the Trevi Fountain, uh, although I don't know if you heard the news today about the Trevi Fountain with the climate activists. No. Oh, oh they, 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 they trashed the Trevi Fountain. They dumped oh, that's good. oil and charcoal and turned it black. They said it's going to take a lot of time to be able to fix it again. But they have either pools or buckets or whatever, and it's for people to toss coins into um, for the souls in purgatory. And the idea is that as you toss the coin in, um, the souls in purgatory will benefit from your charitable donation, which is going to go to the work of the parish. Um, so you've got a kind of tapping into the idea of gaining something for the souls in purgatory in a way that's aiding the local parish. All right. Now that's outside of any kind of canonical rules for tapping into the treasury of merit or whatever it might be. Um, but what happens is that um, is that uh, at Rome, in Rome, uh, in the restored papacy after the end of the Great Western Schism, you get the Roman Curia and the Roman Pontiffs deciding that this is something that um, you can you can work with as well. And it emerges actually, understandably, out of the, 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 the pontiff's efforts before Avignon, um, and actually through the entire crusading period, uh, to gain money for the crusade, uh, for crusades, for crusading purposes as charitable activities. I'm not personally aware of how much um, before the um, 1400s this was tied in with indulgences, but certainly by the time you get into the 1400s, um, and of course you've got new crusades being being called to deal um, with the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, the Turkish uh, uh, takeover of Constantinople, 
the advance into Europe in the late 1400s. You got lots of calls for crusading money. And there was one cardinal, in particular, Cardinal Raymond Perrault, a French Augustinian, who lived between 1435 and 1505, who developed a kind of career with the papacy of uh, calling for uh, men, but then financial aid for the Crusades in a way that would, um, that would uh, 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 give people indulgences in exchange for money donations. Uh, and he travels around a good deal. He's a sort of expert organizer uh, in this regard. But you, you can see that there's a lot of distrust at that time, not about indulgences, not about the right of the papacy to grant the indulgences, but about whether the money that they're collecting is, is really going to go to the Crusades or into somebody's pocket. You know, there's even a, you know, uh, there's a popular expression. I mean, I haven't heard it used recently, but, but I mean, when you learn Germ Germanic idioms, um, one Germanic idiom, a, a verb is uh, Türken, to Turk. And what it means is to try to connive and, you know, manipulate somebody to get something for a purpose, which is really not the one that's, uh, that's, that's, that's self, that's proclaimed. Um, but we have examples of, let's say, for example, Perot going into areas and trying to um, get money for crusading purposes, and then, um, uh, you know, uh, having an indulgence attached to it as a charitable donation, that's, that's a good thing, um, with local authorities saying, well, maybe we'll allow you to go along with this if you give us part of the cut. If you give us part of the cut, and um, this this seems to have happened in a you know variety of ways, but the 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 way it's going to um, really come to the fore is going to be with the grand you know the grand uh, cause celebra of all connected with indulgences, and and that's the one uh, that involves Luther. I guess from a for, so just looking at it from an optimistic point of view or from you know a very basic point of view um you look at for instance the the building of the new immaculata in saint mary's you know right. people who are working on that you know let's say the uh let's say the pope got involved and said hey anyone who's working on the immaculata this is a good work for the glory of god if you're working on it and if you're giving your time and your energy and you're literally working on this building you can get an indulgence great perfect um then you have maybe some people who are disabled or some older people who say, I can't do that. I want the indulgence here. I'm going to give some money so someone else can do it. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. You can get an indulgence for donating the money. The problem is people start going too far and human corruption gets involved. And so that's basically kind of the, the through line of what you're saying is how this, how is it, how do it, how is sorry, how is it that we get from people doing good works to work off their punishment Right. translating into money it's that kind of logic which makes sense but it's, it's problematic real quick yeah it's like again it's the problem of saving the appearances properly um but i mean again uh nobody would deny under any circumstances that donating a money i mean if, a, if i'm a rich man and i build a hospital a catholic hospital i mean i'm doing something which is a charitable work that yeah. that, that god uh, you know, God in his mercy may very well reward me for, may very well reward me for, but, but the, it's the problem of then 
saying specifically, well, you know, you're being rewarded to the effect of uh, remitting all of the time that you would have spent for the temporal punishment, uh, for the, 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 the temporal acts that you had to do of penances um, for the sins you've committed up till you've confessed them. You know, that it's, it's awkward there. And it's always going to be misunderstood by people. Um, yeah. And in fact, in fact, anybody, uh, I mean, this is literally anybody, <laughs> I mean, any parent, um, any teacher, any pastor making announcements at church knows that what, what you say, what you say um, is interpreted by people in, you know, a million different ways and very oftentimes to their advantage. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You started to lead into this point, which is the, the, the main issue of indulgences with Martin Luther. Um, and this all, correct me if I'm wrong, but from my reading of history, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the main problems that Luther had was this glut of indulgence giving and granting that was happening around the construction of St. Peter's. Julius II, who we've talked about before, he passes away. We get Leo X, not a great pope. He realizes he needs a lot of money for St. Peter's. And so he starts basically handing out indulgences like candy to get funds for St. Peter's. Do I have that history right? Well, no, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And the real center, okay. of, the problem, the real center of the problem is in the Roman Curia you know, under Leo X at the time, but also in the specific problem of Albert of Brandenburg. All right, it's the conjunction because the, 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 the indulgence for the donation to the rebuilding of St. Peter's um, uh, went into effect in 1506. Um, and uh, what happens now is a kind of tapping into um, that whole project there which was not, as far as I know, causing any kind of great stir anywhere in terms of a criticism. The tapping into that project specifically by Albert of Brandenburg, that's, that's where the trouble comes in, and which then evokes um, the, um, the, the, the greed of the Roman Curia, but in conjunction particularly with this, this fellow. So we have to talk about Albert of Brandenburg before anybody okay. else. Now, now, Albert Albert of Brandenburg is um, uh, he's uh, he's born in when is he born? Fourteen ninety, all right, fourteen ninety. So he's he's from the Hohenzollern family, which is a, you know a hugely important family. Uh, the other the, the the family came to, um, to 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 importance because of its connection with the one of the Crusading orders, the Teutonic Knights, um, and he is part of this family is somebody who has to be provided for, all right? So uh, he's born in 1490. By, um, by the time he, um, he is 20, he's starting to uh, accumulate dioceses under his control, all right? In his case, I was trying to check up on this today, uh, and um, I, 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 I forgot to actually look at it. There's a, there's a source which is called Catholic Hierarchy that has got pretty much everybody from the beginning that you can find information on listed. And I looked him up in order to be able to, uh, uh, to remi remind myself of how many dioceses he had under his control. And I, I forgot to check the statistic to see whether or not he was actually ordained um, himself. But I, I think he was. 
So if you look up, if you if you've got it there, you look up Albert of Brandenburg, you might be able to find an ordination date uh, for him. But I mean, um, even if he were by trans standards, um, he would have had as uh, and he's not the worst example of this. He would have had uh, bishoprics under his control before the date that he would have been considered eligible to be ordained. But then yeah, again, he was he was ordained in 1513, but he has oh. a lot of looks like he has a lot of uh, diocese under his control. Yep. So so he's already he's already got this before he would legitimately now be able to be ordained. Although it's not as bad as people who were already named cardinals before they were even born, you know. But right. I that. So I think he's he, he's he's an accumulator of dioceses, and he's got he's the I think he's the administrator of the diocese of Halberstadt, which is a, already an important thing. But he's also got the mo, this hugely important diocese of Magdeburg under his control, and he wants and then gets. Also, the Archdiocese of Mainz. And um, uh, Mainz has tied with it very important responsibilities. You're one of the small numbers of electors of the emperor, the, the handful of people who elect the emperor, if you're the Archbishop of Mainz. Um, and you're also, um, I, I believe, the Chancellor of the Holy Roman Emperor, if you're the Archdiocese, uh, Arch, Archbishop of Mainz. And um, he, uh, in order to get this uh, diocese under his control, he's got he's got to pay a lot of money. He's got to pay a lot of money. Uh, he's got to pay a lot of money because the Roman Curia demands uh, a good sum of money for you to really be invested with uh, the pallium. You know this this ceremonial um, uh, skin for um for uh uh being uh, in control of the of a diocese and rome has got its 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 demands uh of what needs to be paid it um which are you know quite high quite high but then he's also got to pay uh, some money to be exempted from the canonical rules which ought not to allow him to have this extra diocese under his control so in order to pay Rome, he's got to um, borrow money. He's got because he doesn't have it. And this is, by the way, one of the chief already existing circumstances of uh, the rulers generally in Europe or noble families in Europe that they got to go into hock to money men. They've got to go into hock to money men or make deals with money men. Um, and so what he does is he borrows a lot of money from the big banking company. Of the day in Augsburg, the Fugger, um, we call the Fugger Corporation or whatever. It's like the Black Rock of the, you know, <laughs> of the. <laughs> so, so what happens is he um, he he he's got to pay all of this money. Now he he wants to find a way to recoup so that he can pay the Fugger. So what he does is he makes a deal with the Roman Curia that they will grant an indulgence. They will grant an indulgence to be preached in his two big provinces of Magdeburg and Mainz. Um, and the indulgence will be to give money. The purpose will be to give money for the rebuilding of St. Peter's, which is still being rebuilt. However, he is going to be able to get half the profits. Goodness. He's going to split it 50%. So 50% of the, 
is going to go to Albert in order to repay the Fugger family um, for the loan that he's taken, which he took out to pay Rome for exemptions. I mean, this is, you know, this is, this is not pleasant. Um, this is not pleasant. Uh, uh, so, so that's the background. So Rome okay. grants indulgence, and they name Albert the, com the commissioner, you know, in charge of the indulgence. But, I mean, Albert doesn't have any knowledge of how to preach an indulgence, and I'm not even certain that he understood uh, what it was all about. I mean, I'm not understood if he, I, I'm, I'm not sure if he understood whether or not uh, it, um, uh, it involved uh, time for penances that you're doing here on earth, as opposed to 39 million years in purgatory in a place right. without time at all anyway. Uh, I don't know what he thought, but his commission, his sub-commissioner is, um, is Johann Tetzel. All right. It's Tetzel. Right now, Tetzel is a, a Dominican um, and Tetzel is a German. All right. Tetzel is a German, I believe from Nuremberg. Uh, Tetzel, Tetzel has, has a, an interesting, you know, career. He had traveled to Spain. Um, uh, he was, he was, uh, when was Tetzel born? I think in, uh, 1465, he's born and he, he traveled to, to Spain, uh, before the final conquest, you know, of, 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 of Granada. And he came back, he was really horrified by the influence of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, Muslim customs in Spain. And, uh, also again, the, 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 uh, uh, the Moranos in Spain. He was he was he was a little bit disturbed by all of this stuff, uh, but he comes back, and he is uh, the man who is in charge of the preaching of the indulgence and, uh, and and having to get other people to help him with the preaching of the indulgence. So what ends up happening is that uh, that uh, this is going to go into operation, and Albert sends out a summary instruction. An instruction for how to how, what this is all about, and the summary instruction is is already a confusing thing. It's already a confusing thing uh, because of the fact that, as you can see already, with the willingness of the Roman Curia to accept um, exemptions from canonical regulations in exchange for a money payment. Um, there's, there's all kinds of other little tricky things here involving exemptions that can be seen in the summary instruction. I mean, for example, uh, you got to go to confession. You got to go to confession uh, before the indulgence will have any impact. You've got to go to confession and then be absolved of your sins. Um, but there are certain sins that are reserved to bishops and uh, others reserved to the Pope himself. And in the summary instruction, there's indications, well, you know, under these circumstances, some of these, ex these, are, these are, 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 are obviated, and it doesn't have to be that you go to this one as opposed to that one. Normally, you would go to your parish priest. Uh, in fact, in, in canon law, I don't even, I, 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 I'm not certain, I'm not a canon lawyer, I don't know whether this exists or not uh, still, but the general idea, you know, from Fourth Lateran Council onward was when you fulfilled your, uh, your Easter obligation, it was at your local parish priest, you know, 
But everybody from the very beginning fled to Franciscans and Dominicans so they didn't have to go to the local parish priest who might know who they were when they were confessing things. So, so, So it seems to have been the case, and this enters into Luther's argument as well, that people who um, were listening, people who were given the instruction in order to preach the indulgence, much less people who were going to hear those preaching the indulgence, were, were a little bit confused as to who you had to go to, when you had to go to him, how it would be done, um, in a way that through their preaching could then allow people to think, well, maybe the confession is just a formality after all. Um, and, you know, maybe you could get the indulgence and then put off the confession until a time when it was suitable for you to go to the confession um, in a way that, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, could easily fit in with um, the, um, uh, the, the easy conscience of some people. Uh, not to speak of the people who were hearing this and didn't understand a word of what you were talking about, just wanted to get a plenary indulgence that would free them of all of their temporal temporal uh, penances. So that's what Luther, that's what Luther um, is going to um, get upset about, and he's going to um, uh, write a letter to Albert of uh, Brandenburg which is going to involve the, um, the, 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 uh, the statements that come down to us as the 95 theses that he, he, he is going to um, uh, put on the, um, on the, in effect, notice board uh, by the, uh, the palace of the local ruler, the elector, Frederick, the elector of Saxony. Now, by the way, Frederick, the elector of Saxony, um, is a man who also believes in indulgences. Um, and he's also one of the greatest collectors of relics um, in, um, in Europe. Uh, and there have already been indulgences attached to saying prayers by before the relics, many of which he's got in his palace in Wittenberg. And he smells, Frederick, um, this money-making scheme of Albert and he prohibits his subjects from electoral Saxony to cross over into the territories where this um, this um, he pre- he prohibits his subjects from having the indulgence preached to them in electoral Saxony. Um, and he tells them, if you want to gain indulgences, what you should do is come and visit my palace, um, where you can gain an indulgence because of prayers by, to you know at, at the relics that I have present here, and of course, if pilgrims stream in to Wittenberg, I mean, there's going to be profits to be made off of these pilgrims as well. So he doesn't want uh, them to come into his territory. So Luther now, as a subject of his, is going to write to complain about the whole thing. Some of his subjects, Frederick subjects, leave. Uh, his territory to go into the territories where they're being, where the indulgence is being preached, and that irritates him um, still more uh, that they're doing this. So you can see how a budding alliance could grow up here um, if, um, if 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 it all really blew up. But in any case, Luther then uh, posts his arguments publicly, which, um, as as you know. Um, was not, you know, this dramatic gesture as is 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 is, right. is 
depicted in painting. I mean, it's just a, an announcement of a, a call to debate and discussion, which was a common thing you would do. Um, and there is going to be, obviously, a discussion. But, I mean, Luther, Luther is um, himself, uh, he wears a number of hats. I mean, he's, he, he's, a, he's a, a, a monk, but he's a very, very effective um, uh, preacher. And, um, and when he wants to write in a style, which is a rabble-rousing preaching style, which he does write a good deal in, uh, he's, he's, he's learned um, through his training uh, as a humanist, he's learned how to manipulate words. He knows how to use yeah. words very, very effectively. So he's going to have a very, very, very um, effective um, uh, mode of expressing himself. And, and he's tapping into uh, a, a problem uh, with regard to uh, this, this question of indulgences, which, which is misunderstood by people. And even, uh, even if it's on the up and up, uh, because of the appearances connected with the money issue, uh, can readily be misunderstood. And in this case, there is something fishy about the whole thing. You know, why should um, uh, Albert get half of the money for indulgence? Sure. It's a charitable act um, that you're contributing to, to pay back money for something which is an exception to an abuse um, and, and, and the like. It's, it's, it's very, very awkward. Um, so that there's a lot of things Luther says, which just bring up serious questions, uh, questions which can be answered, some of them, but um, need to be addressed in a way that would, um, would, would not allow for popular abuses to emerge. But there's also in these statements of his, uh, his, uh, his, his the, the, the reference to what will be developed as his core, his core doctrinal, dogmatic um, uh, axe to grind with the entire system, not just of the Roman church, but ultimately of, of, of the, 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 the Orthodox church in the, in, the, in the East as well. So he becomes the voice for a lot of the complaints here. Um, or confusions here. Can and, I jump in for a quick second? Sorry. Sure. On, in terms of Luther's criticism of indulgences, and I know he's going to go into a, a lot of other areas, and and we all know the Protestant uh, heresy is going to go off the rails, but just looking at his criticism of indulgences, was he correct to bring that up? And was he correct in saying, there's a problem here, Pope's got to figure this out? He's correct, but um, but the correct part veers into the incorrect part. Right. It's not. Okay. It's not. It's they're not separate alone, um, and it's not the case. It, it 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 is absolutely the case, and this is hugely important for the whole future development of Protestantism. It is absolutely the case that Luther does not see the logical consequences of his central theme, and. He is a nominalist by, uh, by philosophy. He believes of the fact that, you know, philosophical discussions of the will of God um, are really not uh, capable of being made. And ultimately what's going to happen is that when he talks about the obvious will of God, it's going to be that obvious will of God connected with his central, his Luther's central doctrinal deviance from the Roman church. 
Um, but he's not going to see all the logical consequences of his own ideas. And as a result of that, he's just going to try to smash all of the more logical, more radical Protestants by means of political power coming to his aid on behalf of his more conservative vision of Protestantism. Okay. But, it is, but it is the case that he has already developed his central idea to a large degree before he applies it to the indulgence uh, question. And we know this because we know that he was bandying about uh, with a number of his colleagues um, his speculations on the question of, of, of sin um, and forgiveness of sin uh, for a year or so before the indulgence issue came up. And in fact, uh, when he first heard Luther's idea, uh, the one of the uh, most important early leaders of the radicalizing faction, the man who was referred to uh, by people popularly as Karlstadt, um, who was a colleague of his at the new University of Wittenberg. He was shocked when he heard what Luther had to say, but then takes the ball and runs with it later. So Luther's 95 theses, which are there in the letter that he writes to Albert of Brandenburg, ostensibly to complain about the instruction, the summary instruction, for the preaching of the indulgence, it's got sound questions that uh, some of which may have, in fact, have already been addressed addressed theologically, but which have been which are popularly still misunderstood. Um, it's got um, it's got uh, you know a real sense of horror about corruption um, in the church, which is you know laudable in in many respects, and in fact. Um, a number of the people in the in the uh, in the the debating theological world who are going to read uh, Luther's comments here because Luther sends them around to the chief figures of the day in the different universities in Germany. A number of the one, those who are going to become very swiftly um, his, his his very serious enemies. At first glance, they um, they they they're glad. That he did this. They're glad that he did this, um, but they're going to turn around when they're aware of what it is. There's only, I think, all, I think only really among the reputable theologians of Germany at the time, the only one who from the very outset um, uh, smelled the big problem here was Eck, Johannes Eck, who was going to be his opponent at the Leipzig disputation. Uh, but Luther wrote respectfully to Eck because he thought he would be totally on his side. So it's a, it's a mixture of things that are there. So how does the church start to unravel this? They they all of a sudden, you know obviously the Protestant Reformation starts starts happening. Um, does the Pope at some point or another start to realize we've got to we've got to figure out this whole indulgence thing and we've got to start putting in some safeguards? Does that happen right away or does that take no. a while? No, that that doesn't happen right away at all. I mean, what's going to happen is that um, what's going to happen here is that the whole question is going is going to be dealt with in, in such a um, uh, such a uh, um, ultimately reprehensible manner uh, that um, it, it, it's 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 the reason why decades are given for the whole thing to spread. I mean, there is one very, very serious figure involved in an attempt 
um, to try to deal with the question just one-on-one -on -one with Luther. Um, and that's uh, with the, um, the, the uh, meeting that Luther has with Cardinal Cayetan, the, the very great um, Dominican um, uh, uh, neo-Thomist uh, Scott, who, who understands what the problem is here, but it's just too steeped in too many political, financial, other difficulties for the Roman authorities to take seriously as, as they ought to have done. It just gets swallowed up in a, a number of uh, other matters that, um, you know, I, I mean, if we have the time, we could go into, uh, but, um, but I, I don't know if we can. But let me just mention beforehand, though, I mean, Luther does bring up a lot of questions that, that people did have um, and confusions that people popularly have. Uh, in other words, um, in other words, with respect to things like what, 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 what time, you know, are, are people really su sufficiently aware of what you're talking about when you're talking about the time connected uh, with these uh, indulgences? Uh, even if he doesn't specify that specifically, it's referring to confusions of that sort. Uh, there was a lot of confusion over this question of applying uh, the, um, the merits to the souls in purgatory, because the question is, how can, how can they benefit from that if they can't go to confession any longer? Whereas the person taking the indulgence can um, still go to confession. Luther, and I think it's number 82 of the, um, of the 95 Theses, brings up this question, which is going to be, a, you know, one that, you know, it, it sounds serious. It's a, it's a good rhetorical talking point that if, if the Pope has the authority over this whole treasury of merits, <clears throat> why does he just empty it out all at once, you know, and give it to everybody? So that they can all then be freed from their sin, from the, the penances they have to do on earth and start from scratch again. Um, why can't they? Why can't they? You know, do just that. Why does it just liberate everybody all at once, or for that matter, apply it to all the people in purgatory, so that they can all get out? And you know, this is a, as I say, a kind of rhetorical talking point because it, it just is so stripped from outside of the picture of personal responsibility and what you'd be talking about in terms of a, 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 an individual uh, you know, on pilgrimage through life, uh, uh, taking advantage of something like this to move on forward, to keep just going through the same, you know, same actions again and again, requiring a further emptying of the treasury of merits um, in, in, in the future. Um, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff, but the, the bigger problem is that after starting off recognizing the authority of the Pope and seemingly not attacking indulgences as such, in other numbers of the, um, the 95 theses, you can see that Luther is talking about the question of repentance for sin um, and penance for sin as something which is separate from the whole sacramental act of confession. Um, and absolution. I mean, it doesn't dot the I's and cross the T's on it, but he talks about it in such a way as to make it um, clear that his discussion here um, is veering outside of the entire uh, sacramental uh, structure of the, um, the individual penitent, the individual and his responsibility for uh, his sorrow for his sins and the confrontation with the priest. 
you got to look at all of them to see uh, how there's these, you know, seeds that are there. And not everybody who was reading them saw saw all of that um, in the picture. And instead, they heard the, um, you know, the 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 assault on um, on, on on the abuse. Uh, that 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 could be obvious to anybody who knew what Albert of Brandenburg's whole game in this thing um, uh, was. I mean, you can imagine. Let's say, for example, if somebody, um, somebody, uh, somebody of importance, you know, attacked all, and I, th- and, and in fact, you do have examples of this. Attacked some of the most blatant um, um, uh, defenses of of uh, communion for the divorced and civilly remarried, uh, uh, same-sex marriages, if they attacked all of that stuff um, and would win the support of a lot of uh, uh, well-meaning Catholics, while at the same time not really correcting a lot of other problems that they had, uh, that could lead you to be, um, lead you to be uh, led down the primrose path in a different direction. And so, I mean, it was the initial, you know, assault that really uh, won a lot of people over. And then, um, uh, as it uh, as it becomes more clear where Luther is going, uh, then they 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 back away from him. But as far as the church is concerned, it um, it takes a while. I mean, the whole rest of the pontificate of Leo the Tenth, um, and then his successor, Pope Clement. And, he, and then even going into, again, the, rel- the reign of Paul III. I mean, Paul III, as we mentioned in talking about, about uh, you know, the corruption of the uh, papacy, Paul III is the bane of the existence of a number of the, the legates at the Council of Trent uh, because fa- the, the politics of the Farnese family clearly take precedence in his mind still to his very death over what's going on uh, in Trent. And underneath Leo and then underneath Clement and into the reign of Paul III, the question of the political power of Charles V um, and whether or not uh, that's going to be, be dangerous for the papacy uh, takes precedence over fighting the Protestants or dealing with the Protestant issue. Um, uh, and, and even in that very short reign of Pope Adrian, in the 15, uh, 1520s, who had been a, um, a, uh, a, a, a kind of tutor and a spiritual um, father uh, for, for the young Charles V, I mean, uh, that, that, that poor fellow was going to be s- swept up into all kinds of uh, uh, concerns for political issues as, as well. Um, it's just, it's teeth grinding, seeing everybody going off and, and, and fighting the wrong battles. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's teeth grinding for people like Eck, for example. Poor Eck. I mean, Eck, Eck is um, is deeply committed to uh, fighting the good fight. Uh, people complain about him because he is um, he is uh, uh, you know he he can be he can be really you know rather rough in his arguments. But all you have to do is read Luther to see that this is the tone of of these people. Uh, to a large degree at the time, um, and he's you know he's 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 got a rough time, Eck, and has kind of a liking for the bottle um, as well. But um, but uh, but he fights the good fight, and he's just tortured 
by the lack of seriousness on the part of most people. And how could your average bishop be serious when your average bishop sometimes sometimes is not even a priest, generally yeah. politically minded, and then your average bishop, even when he's got a solid education, and many of them do have a solid education, their education is a legal education. Yep. And it's not a theological education. And they don't even under, they don't understand what's at stake here. They don't understand what's going on here. Um, it goes in one ear and out the other. Um, and um, uh, uh, and that, that's grist for Luther's mill as well, because because he can point it out to people. He says these people are just, you know, they 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 they're they're not they're not concerned about the issues that really are important to God. Right. So to kind of recap where we are from from here, we have this whole series, if I can kind of summarize it in 20 seconds, which I'll try to do. Uh, we have this whole series of, of corruption where bishops and archbishops are being appointed, where they really have no place of being. So now we have the hierarchy and the, and the carry of the church is all being staffed by these guys who really have, I shouldn't say no spiritual uh, emphasis, but very little spiritual emphasis, painting with a broad brush here. Um, and then when these problems do start to arise, you have a real crisis of uh, Luther and, and these re reformers, quote unquote reformers, trying to say, hey, there's problems within the church. They don't really care about the spiritual side of things. They're not well equipped to handle this fight, this battle, because they're all still kind of infighting and working for their own political power. And so the church takes a little while to kind of get their wheels spinning. What Luther's thesis, what, in 1517? And then the Council of Trent's not called till 1545 and doesn't really end until. 10, 15 years later. So we have almost two generations going past where nothing's really done about these huge issues. Meanwhile, Protestantism is, and, and these errors are really starting to spread because of the printing press, et cetera. Right. Well, I mean, you know, again, the, the, the situation is the worst um, in, um, in the, 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 the whole of Central Europe. That's where the, and in France, it's, 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 it's not, not good either. Spain um, had been cleaned up uh, to, to, to a large degree, uh, underneath uh, uh, Isabella, with Isabella's work and uh, the, card, the great Cardinal uh, Cisneros um, uh, in Spain. But, um, and, and, and the Spanish episcopacy and also the learned people who aid the Spanish episcopacy are going to be very, very much uh, at the center of promoting uh, the most root and branch reforms at the Council of Trent. Uh, they're hugely important. And what's interesting about them as well is that they are also aware of another problem that's connected uh, with the situation, even when you're cleaning up uh, the church of its worst, um, its worst sort of money-focused, secular-focused internal issues. And that is the fact that um, you have to Protect yourself against political domination. Uh, the, 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 the Spanish bishops at the Council of, of Trent were very much concerned about uh, the strength of the Spanish monarchy being so great that, that it could end up dominating uh, the, um, the, the, the episcopacy in a way that would not allow it to continue to do its primarily spiritual job. And they had an example to look to, which proves the point, because you had another church in Europe that was um, that was uh, cleaned up in a way, in a way 
um, that 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 uh, caused it to be rid of some of the worst abuses of what was going on in the German world, but cleaned up in a way that linked it totally with the with the with the um, the outside uh, political structure, uh, and and committed to working with the outside political structure as a means of just simply calming what had been a very very troubled um, uh, situation politically inside the country including civil war for any number of years, and that's England. Um, the Episcopacy in England was quite trained, um, uh, quite, quite educated. Um, uh, yes, with people like, um, like um, uh, Cardinal Wolsey, uh, very much steeped in a kind of personal corruption, but, but much, much more tightly, tightly disciplined than anything in Germany. But it needed to have a monarch that would not abandon the faith in order to be able to function properly. And when you got the monarch who did, after initially seeming to be one who was against Luther, what it did is just caved in like a house of cards to it. Um, you needed to have an episcopacy that was soundly formed in what the duties of a bishop was, what, what the duties of a bishop were, in union with a papacy that was soundly trained with regard to what its primarily spiritual goal was, goals were, um, guided by this spiritually focused reform movement, which thankfully does have more and more of an influence um, as, um, as, as time goes on. Never, never 100% influence, otherwise we wouldn't be in the situations we were in afterwards again but but a, but a greater influence yeah great enough to avoid the problems of bishops who are not even bishops <laughs> and uh and you know and and the worst um uh, apparent uh, abuses of anything connected with indulgences uh, uh which are which are really dealt with by trent and by saint pius v Wow, this has been uh, fascinating. On your notes, you passed along. You said um, there's a there's a saint who comes around, Saint Catherine of Geneva, and uh, she has a big role to play. Uh, who is she, and what did she do? Saint Catherine of Geneva is one of my my favorite saints. Uh, she lived between uh, 1435 and 1505, and um, she influenced any number of different uh, uh, reform groups. Uh, lay groups, mixed lay clerical groups, uh, groups that in Italy, where she was you know, f first and foremost active, uh, uh, took on the name of congregations or societies of divine love. Um, she's the inspiration behind the people who create the, the Theatines uh, that, that, that Pope Paul IV uh, was part of. She's very much an inspiration to the Jesuits as well. And her whole thrust, her whole thrust of the argument is that um, that the rut of corruption that the the the, the church is steeped in in her day um, is not something that's going to be uh, cured by means of ultimately even um, councils and canonical legislation uh, and the like because. All of the canonical legislation is there. Um, all of the rules are there. The problem is the secular-minded, legally steeped 
uh, uh, individual uh, is it doesn't want to see the fact that the minute that you legislate still more, you find more exemptions that end up giving you a way out of uh, uh, out of this. It's um, it's it's in the nature of the beast of the legal beast um, to just generate more and more and more discussions of how you can avoid responsibilities that you have and get away with things. And um, and I mean, uh, uh, in this regard, I can quote a friend of mine. Uh, he's deceased, long deceased friend of mine, um, who who I remember decades ago, he said something which really impressed it, uh, itself on my mind. He said he said to me, um, Anglo-Saxon legal procedures, he said, are um, have proven in their in their their development to have been probably the best means of determining guilt or innocence. He said, but when you put Anglo-Saxon legal procedures in the hands of people who operate, and I'm, 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 I'm going to use this term in the way in which, you know, people generally understand it, um, uh, it be, be because of all of the ins and outs of it, you know, including the cr critiques within the particular religious group we're going to mention, you put it in the hands of people with a Talmudic mentality with endless distinctions, or for that matter, the worst of the abuses of scholastic, um, you know, logic, uh, as people debate what one thinker said about another thinker, thinking about another thinker, thinking about another thinker, and the way in which you get academic footnotes piling up for thousands of pages, you never end the legal arguments. So St. Catherine of Siena said, and all of the people influenced by her said, the object, the job of the spiritual director is to make everyone, layman, cleric, put face to face with the horror of, 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 of a sin against God and recognizing that you are going to have to stand there to answer before God for what you did. And you're not going to be able to pull up your 16 legal documents granting you 800 exemptions, which required you to get money from the house of Fugger in order to deal with this, because you're going to have your naked soul facing the all-loving God. Um, and so she said, you've got to put everybody face-to-face -face with the reality of the horror of sin, and then say to them, what is your vocation in life, and is what, is what you're doing really fulfilling your vocation in life. And it's this that really inspired all of the, uh, these, these, um, these, these reformers. Um, and even in, in, with St. Ignatius, St. Ignatius is also influenced by the Brethren of the Common Life and the like. You know, the spiritual exercises, they evoke the kind of things that St. Catherine of, um, of, of Genova did with regard to facing the, the, the evils of purgatory. You know, St. Saint, Saint Ignatius says, depict hell in all of its horror, depict it all in all of its horror, and then see that you are going to be responsible for answering God, you know? And that's, that's what the spirit of these... Uh, Paul IV was horrified by legal discussions. That's why he, he didn't want to recall another session of the Council of Trent, because he said it's just going to be more debating, more debating. What's needed now is yeah. the soul before God and answering it and then striking, you know, against uh, 
the, the, the abuses there. That, that's the spirit that, that ended up motivating these people. It's fascinating. As we go through the history of the church, we see these, these periods where the, the church dives into the, the legal arguments, dives into the practical elements, and it always takes a saint, it takes good theologians to come back and say, yes, we, we need all this. But at the end of the day, you've got to have the spiritual life. You've got to have the interior life. You've got to have that. Otherwise, none of this is, is going to work. Nope. And then, you know, I don't, uh, I don't, I, I've been doing a lot of uh, lecturing and other things. I can't remember whether I've said this here or, or elsewhere. But, but, you know, again, um, when people bring up all of this, this stuff about the corruption in the church, the corruption in the church, those who know the history of the church, um, even they're horrified by the corruption, but it, it never ever obviates um, uh, the um, the beauty of it. And uh, forgive me if I mentioned this once before, but Dietrich von Hildebrand uh, was in the 1920s present in Rome uh, at the side of Ludwig von Pastor, who uh, in the 20s became the ambassador to the Holy See of the New Republic of Austria. And he was present with him at a canonization ceremony. I don't know whose canonization it was. And von Hildebrand said that here was Ludwig von Pastor, who had written these 40 volumes in which endless crimes of popes, bishops, priests are all depicted. And he said, he's there at this canonization, and he said he's sobbing in tears because he knows that the you know the beauty of the church um, uh, is 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 more than this 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 pettiness. In fact, Saint Catherine of Geneva she points out, you know, you know, when you confront yourself with a sin, you know, in the in front of uh, you know the 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 eyes of God, and you you realize, I mean, every sin, including the greatest, most horrendous sin, is just shown to be the the piece of little filth that it really is, you know, and then the overwhelm, you could not possibly be in the sight the, the, of the overwhelming majesty and holiness of God if, if you were still steeped in that, that bit of filth, because you'd realize you'd have to go hide yourself in shame from it, you know, you, you can't, and you can't hide yourself in shame with it, but I had an exemption, I had an exemption. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, this, is, this is fascinating. Um, you brought up a little bit earlier what Pope Benedict XVI, you know, his, he, he had a, a great um, desire, I think, and, and you know more about this than I do by, by far, but I, it seems to me he had a great desire to root out corruption, but he was very much on the academic side of things. He was very much a theologian. He wasn't really a mover shaker. He was kind of a quiet academic. Um, but he did speak about corruption quite a bit in regards to the church today, right? Oh, oh, yes, 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 indeed. And of course, you know, I mean, remember in this regard that um, that um, uh, the, that uh, the one of the last episodes uh, that um, that uh, disturbed his pontificate was the Vati Leaks episode, yep. which, was, which was all about making known. Um, things that were there coming out of his office with regard to uh, to uh, all kinds of subjects, but including corruption. And uh, much of what, what those Vati leaks were all about were rather insignificant. 
But what they did also reveal was the fact that there was this investigation that had gone on, on underneath um, Archbishop Vigano at the time. Archbishop Vigano had been in, entrusted with the investigation of corruption underneath what's called the governate uh, in the Vatican. And one of the things that was revealed by the journalist um, who worked in cahoots with the valet, who seems to have been a poor, confused, psychologically disturbed fellow. Um, but one of the things was uh, these documents from Vigano that were complaining about his uh, being removed from his position and sent off as nuncio to the United States because he, 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 he complained that um, there were people who did not want him to in investigate it. And Benedict um, makes mention of this in, in his, his, his series of interviews with his biographer, Seewald. He makes mention of it, and he, he says that, um, he says that, um, uh, that it was an important position that they sent Vigano to, but that, um, but that he, he was pursuing all of this stuff, and there were people who were complaining that he was going about it in too relentless a way. You know, so yeah, I mean, he's very much aware of the corruption in the church. He says outrightly, he said, I did not abdicate because of the fact that I was overwhelmed by the corruption. He said, anybody who knows the history of the church knows it's filled with corruption. And yeah. unfortunately, that's the case. So he 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 specifically countered an argument by um, an American journalist that he had abdicated because he was overwhelmed by the corruption. He said, that's not, not the case at all. Um, but, um, but it, it's there and, um, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's something that would, you know, I, I think I disturb anybody, but, um, but he, he admits that his chief failing as Pope was that he was an academic and that he wasn't much of an administrator. And he said that when he got so tired towards the end, it was as though, I can't remember if this is he or Genswein, his secretary, saying this, that every time there was a new folder about a new problem put on his desk, it was like a declaration of war, you know, against yeah. his physical stamina. Um, but um, but it's, um, it's, it's what it is. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's over, it, it can be overwhelming and it can be so how do I phrase this? To me as a historian, it's never, it's never done anything but confirm my faith. It's never done anything but confirm my faith. Because you can always see, um, you know, when you look at past errors of corruption, you can see because you know there's going to be an error of renewal afterwards. And you see that when you're in the pit of the corruption, all these forces working for the renewal are all there, you know, mm -hmm. already. And it's 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 a it's a crime and it's a scandal that the stuff is taking place that's taking place, uh, but nevertheless, I, I, it's just a cause for joy for me to know that um, that it, it you you can't you can't get rid of us, you know you just yeah. can't, you can't get rid of us. Um, uh, uh, it, it's it's going to come out um, in in God's providence the way God wants it to to come out through all the trials, uh, but it's it's disillusioning and it's um it's 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 it, it is something that can cause lots of people to to abandon uh, yeah. if they don't 
don't know the reality or don't want to admit the reality of, uh, of the human condition. I was doing an episode with Father Reuter a couple of years back uh, when we were doing the crisis series. And there was one episode, I don't remember exactly what episode it was, but we were going through, you know, big crises, big problems, you know, corruption in the, in the church, you know, after, after the Second Vatican Council, all that. And I remember sitting at the end of the episode, just defeated, discouraged, just upset. And uh, he, he could tell, and he's like, don't worry. It's okay. This is this crisis. This is a mystery. This is something that God has given us. And, and this is actually a good thing for us to be able to reflect on the mystery of this crisis and that God's providence will win in the end. This is not a pessimistic, this isn't something to be discouraged about. This is something to actually be optimistic about, that God has control of everything, not us. And it's kind of similar to what you're saying. It's God's working all of this through the corruption of us. Yeah. No, and again, again, uh, to go... You know, like, like as we've discussed, I mean, I've been involved in this since I was 19 years old. I mean, in the traditionalist camp since I was 19 years old. And the 1970s, again, were really dreary. Yeah. Dreary in this regard. Although, I, I, even in the 1970s, I don't remember um, ever suffering incredible depression. There was a period in the 1980s when I just got fed up with the, uh, it seeming as though uh, anything I was doing was not causing any kind of uh, dent in the, yeah. of the enemy. And, and so I kind of took a probably about a two-year hiatus from the whole thing. But then I was dragged back into it, thankfully, uh, by being asked to lecture at, um, in, in Richfield. You know, that's got, got back into the whole picture. And then when you look at it, when I look at it and look at it from the standpoint of, you know, the handful of ragged people we were at the beginning seeming to deal with this. Yeah. You look at pictures of us taken at tiny little gatherings in church basements, and we look like pictures of the most forlorn <laughs> at the end of the Third Republic in France. <laughs> um, and, then, and then now... Now, I mean, the, the, the groups I'm encountering and then um, uh, uh, the, 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 the quality of the audiences. I, I was lecturing a week ago at, at, um, um, for, for the Society in Chicago, and I, um, uh, they, they were apologizing to me. They were saying, oh, we're sorry that there's only this small number of people. Everybody is frightened of Chicago now. But there were 60 people in the audience. I said, 60 yeah. people is you know, a triumph, you know, of the greatest order. And then the questions that were coming from these people were all serious questions. And uh, in comparison to the kinds of questions you would get among the ragtag group of us in the 1970s, my gosh, it demonstrated just how much progress the whole, the whole movement has made. When, when, yeah. I, when, I, when I went off to England, after having started with the, the, the seeing everything falling into wor a worse and worse pit in the early 70s, I went off to England to study. And my, um, my, you know, my, 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 those who had introduced me into the movement, they said, just concentrating in your doctorate because there'll be enough battles to fight when it's over. And so I, I, I did. And there were certain elements in England that were fighting. That's where I met Michael Davies and, 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 uh, and uh, the people who had uh, had there all, all kinds of uh, 
ties with uh, the, the, the budding movement of Archbishop Lefebvre as well. Um, then when I came back after uh, my, my stay there, I went to the first meeting of the Roman Forum that I, I attended. And I, I went into the meeting and I met, uh, um, I, I think it was Dr. Thomas Molnar who was there. And I said to him, how is the movement going? And he said, the movement is stationary. <laughs> I thought that sounds pretty depressing, but, yeah. it, it, but it wasn't. It wasn't even then, and it's just grown bigger and bigger. And one of the greatest, greatest joys to me now is that there is this whole new generation. In my case, at seventy-two now, it's now two generations that have gone through, and my own, my own children are part of it as well. That are there, ready to take up, and are they are taking up the you know, uh, the work that I've done before, I've done, and so many other people before me did, and contemporaries of mine did. And so there's no reason to be, you know, um, um, uh, hopeless. And in fact, sure. maybe die a martyr, that would be the best thing of all. <laughs> yeah, it would be, it would be. Well, Dr. Rao, another great episode. Thank you so much. We have one more coming, and that one's on uh, Galileo. So we will talk to you next week about that. So thanks again for your time. Okay, thanks again. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.